Welcome to Your Life, The Sequel. A podcast about getting your act together and making changes happen in your life. You want change and we want to help you with guests and discussions about how to make change in your life, whether big or small, change can happen. This is your chance to become the person you were meant to be. Now, here we are, Rick Roshan and Melissa Carlson. Welcome, everybody, to Your Life, The Sequel. I'm Melissa Carlson. And I am Rick Roshan. I am so excited for today's guest. Not only is he a dear friend since we were baby gays in San Francisco, (laughs) we have been friends forever and ever and ever, and he's a super, super talented person that is the epitome of stick-to-itiveness and keeping with something in spite of all signs that it's not going to work out until it works out. Like he, this story is amazing. And I mean, the, just the tenacity that this person embodies is inspirational to everyone around him, everyone that knows him, people who don't know him, they're going to be inspired by this story. My dear friend, Matthew Davison. Matthew, say Hello. Hello. Hi, Matthew. What I'm happy to say here and what I'm so happy that you're here with us is because I think that writing, which is which is your forte, what you're going to be chatting with us about today, is something that everybody has in them. But I think so many people feel like they have a story, but they just don't know how to get it out or even start the process of something as easy as just writing a short story or whatever it is that helps them get their story out. And So, Matthew, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be where you are now when it comes to writing. Well, I agree with you that everybody does have a story that's inside of them and that it can be tricky to unlock. And for me to get to be uh, from the process of getting my first story written was really kind of a circuitous one in that I perceived myself, I was like a little gay Gemini child running around the yard with my brothers trying to get them to play Wonder Woman with me when all they really wanted to do was play soccer. And I liked soccer, but I was kind of like, why would you play that game if you could, you know, throw glitter in the air and watch it sparkle as it came down? But they weren't quite as interested in those (laughs) things. But exactly. And so I, I think that my perception of myself as a very, very young person was that I would do something more theatrical, perhaps be an actor or something. And so when I left home at a very young age, I wanted to pursue being an actor. But what I didn't know was going to happen was that I would get to San Francisco as a like a 19-year-old and that AIDS would be there. And so what ended up happening was that the stories that I ended up wanting to tell ended up being about my my friends who had been diagnosed with AIDS. They were much more interesting than those portrayals that were happening in the media at the time. And so I was going to auditions, but none of the parts that I was auditioning for were age appropriate. The stuff that I was interested in was uh, much older than what I was. So I started writing my own monologues and people liked my monologues more than they liked my acting abilities. So that's kind of what brought me to, to writing in the first place. So what do you say to people? Explain a little bit where you are at now. You're teaching and, and you're you know helping out those young minds who are looking to try something new or maybe something they've been loving for a long time. Where are you working now? And tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I divide my time fairly equally between San Francisco State University's creative writing department, where I teach in their MFA and BA programs in uh, creative nonfiction and fiction. I write novels and nonfiction essays. 
and uh, I'm working on a memoir. But I, I started teaching there 175,612 years ago <laughs> while I was matriculating <laughs> MFA student myself. I also went to San Francisco State as an undergraduate, so I have tons of history there. And then I also noticed that some of my graduating students who I'd been lucky enough to keep in touch with wanted to continue to do some of the things that they were doing in the classroom after they had graduated, but without all of the pressure of academia. And so I started my own private writing uh, school called The Lab, an experimental place where folks who consider themselves writers or are just barely interested in, in exploring the possibility of writing can come and experiment with starting or deepening a story. So I divide my time between those two things and writing myself. So that's really what I would love to focus on. We're going to talk about your book that is forthcoming in a bit. But in the meantime, let's talk about the lab. And you also have a textbook coming out about writing, which is going to be yes. uh, released this summer as well, right? No, that comes out in 2022. It's due this summer. Oh, God okay. So, so and, and Matthew does really cool <laughs> stuff. Like when there's not COVID, he does writing workshops in Italy, like really wow. interesting stuff. And he's really well regarded when it comes to um, his process around writing and, and helping people to bring their stories out. So Matthew, let's talk about writing for people who, let's first start with people at the stage before they are actually ready to put pen to paper. So when people feel like they've got a story inside of them, we just recently chatted with a woman who, at the age of 75, wrote her first book about her mother. It's a, it's a historical recollection of her mother's story as a um, surfer in her 40s in oh, cool. the 1950s. Really, really fascinating, story, fascinating. Yeah. At, but she was 75 years old when she decided that this was the time that she was going to bring forth this book. And that is now going to become a movie. And that's really, really cool to me because, A, you know, she's 75 and she's not done. So can you talk to us a little bit about how people who feel like they may have a story inside of them, but are at the stage before they're ready to put pen to paper. And then we're going to talk about how, when you finally like are going to put pen to paper and you're through the fear and you're through all that, can you talk to us just a little bit about that process right before you're ready to start writing? Sure. I think that, that most people have a story very, very similar to mine that makes them have some sort of inkling, whether or not they have a fear accompanying it, that they want to tell a story. So for example, for me, I thought that I was going to be leaving all of the oppressive stuff of my childhood behind when I got to, to go to San Francisco. And then the surprise was that there was something else waiting. I mean, we had a blast. Rick and I Rick was there and we had so much fun. So AIDS was one part of that story, but it was the sort of interrupter in what I thought was going to happen with my life. I kind of had constructed this thing to get to California from Massachusetts like I did. I had to invent a fantasy about what it would look like in order to get the, to, to, to sort of shrink those 3000 miles and get back to where I grew up in California. But what I, what happened was something else instead of what I expected. And everybody has that. And most people that come to my class, that's the thing that they want to write about. It's the thing that happened instead of what they expected. And so whether that's someone who really reads a lot and loves the art of creative writing in a particular way, and they want to do their version of that because they consider themselves an artist, 
or whether or not that's someone who is very proud to have been like a mom or a nurse or some other kind of story. Usually it's, I thought this was going to happen and, and then this happened instead. Then combined with that, they usually have some sort of baggage around, you know, essays, school, schooling, grammar, what it takes to um, write something down and or they've been shamed or told that they're not a very good writer by somebody somewhere along the way. And that usually becomes the the sort of final um, roadblock between, you know, this impulse to tell what happened instead because, you know, or what happened to somebody else instead. Sometimes people are interested in telling other people's stories because it's fascinating and they think that they those stories need to get out into the world. And then they, they have some sort of baggage to get over. And uh, um, that's, that's usually what happens when somebody calls me prior to first coming to the lab. And also what a lot of my undergraduate students report in uh, um, their insecurities about their own writing. What do you say to them when they're like, I was told that my writing is crap. I was, you know, I was told that I can't spell. I was told that I can't complete a sentence or whatever, but I've got this fabulous story that I want to get out there. What do I do? What do you say to them? Well, the easiest thing to learn are the skills in order to make the, you know, the language work. The hardest thing is to come up with a compelling and original story that is going to capture the imaginations of people other than you. So uh, I think that, you know, if there's, I, I always just encourage people to worry about that last. Uh, a lot of times people are worried about things that you need to kind of get a lot of success before you actually encounter, for example, like what your mom's going to think when the novel gets published or um, who's going to react negatively once the memoir is published or something. And there's usually a lot of steps between <laughs> between writing your first page and then an audience reacting to it in a public forum. But sometimes those imaginations of what could happen are the things that block them. And so usually yeah. I just, I say, why don't you, why don't you try this, try this, try this. So what is try this, try this, try this? Can you tell us in the case of somebody that is reticent for the reasons that you described? Well, writing a book is hard, but it's also just one page a day for 365 days. So what I try to get people to do is focus on the sentence, the paragraph, the page of that day versus the idea of what might be a whole book. So it's not about completed process. And the reason why I use the metaphor of the lab, and that's also what the textbook is going to be called. And that's what my, my private writing class is called, is because why don't you just come and experiment with your ideas, and then see what ends up happening. And the sort of pedagogical approach that I take is that you can find the container and call it something else later. For right now, what I'll do is I'll show you a clip below a movie, or I'll show you a very intriguing um, piece of visual artwork, or we'll play a song, or we'll do some other thing that just gets you your pen moving across the paper, mm. maybe even writing about something that you didn't even come to write about. Interesting. So, so that people just get into the motion of using articulation through pen or computer keypad to our, yeah. to express themselves. Jump in, warm up, you know, we'll swim laps later, but right now just get in and get wet. Yes. That's, that's usually what we do. I think for a lot of people, Matthew, the, maybe the hardest part for starting their story. Um, I know for a lot of writers, a writer 
I myself have a hard time with where do you start the story? What is your suggestion to people who are looking to, they've gotten over like, okay, I know I need to write and I want to start. How do you start writing? I usually start with an, a, a particular image or an idea and or a strong emotion. So I, I think I that it would depend. Melissa, if you were coming to me um, individually, I would first ask you a little bit about the project. And then I would listen to you talk to me. Usually people talk to me about what their particular frustration might be. Like, I don't know where, I don't know where to start because I always, and then they fill in the blanks. And then I usually listen to those particular fears if I'm working one-on-one with a person or if I'm working with them uh, um, on a particular project. And then I'll just come up with an idea. Why don't you jump in and tell me about that? Like you'll say something um, and then I'll say, why don't you describe that Christmas that you told me about three sentences ago and, and start with just what's under the tree, like unwrap the presents and see it might not be something that's logically connected to the, the project or the outcome of the project, what you want to say, what you think you want to deliver to the world, but it might start um, on, you, there might literally be presents uh, underneath all that paper and box and those boxes for you to discover. And then more in general, I, I don't ask people to tell me what it is that they want to achieve People show up, we're in a big circle in the case of a classroom setting, and I'll say, okay, take out your notebooks. We don't even do intros. We don't say the two truths and a lie. We don't do any of that. We jump in by warming up and I'll say, okay, make two lists. One, the 10 things that your character or you will never tell anybody, and the 10 things that you want to tell people but can't. And Mm. You, you know, it, it goes in a lot of different directions, but that's just one example of the kind of thing that I do to try to to shut down that sort of logical, is it right, left, left side logical part of the brain, and then get more into the creative right side of the brain and just get something down on paper first for which you can then decide later uh, um, how you want to unpack it. That's really interesting. So it seems like that that is a very personal experience for people and is helpful in helping them to get through the process of uh, writing things that are scary for them and sharing parts of themselves that may be scary to share. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple of things that are happening simultaneously with folks. First, there's this conflation between creative writing the art form with the horrible things that we had to do for school in order to pass and to get grades, and or the crap that people have to do for work in order to get paid. And the art form and the enjoyable thing, it's just like the difference between like going out dancing with your friends and the one drill that you had to do over and over and over again if you ever took a dance class, like I don't know what, plies or squats or something if you took a ballet class. And so I think that, that what I try to do is trick people into doing the fun part first, instead of worrying about the baggage that they might have around writing. Because unlike other, you know, other art forms have much clearer distinctions between what's fun and what's hard. Whereas I think that sometimes writing gets all sewn up with baggage people have from their, whatever their academic history mm-hmm. might be. Sure. Or they've been told by others, because some of the best creative writers don't necessarily have, I'm a horrible speller. Lots of uh, um, creative writers are wonderful because of the grammar grammatical errors that they make. That's what gives them voice. That's what gives them a unique point of view. And so they've been told by other people that they shouldn't sound like that or talk like that when it comes to like formal writing. And sometimes they, they think that that's something that they have to take out of their writing rather than polish and celebrate. Interesting. And I try to tell them 
polish celebrate. So do you think that it's possible for somebody to and to start writing creatively by just speaking and doing like a voice transcription sort of thing? Like, or do you think that it is, there's something that happens where the pen meets the paper or the fingers meet the keyboard? I'm like you, I've listened to some of your other episodes of the show and I just don't think that there's any one right way to do anything. I might be more successful if I did think that there was some sort of uh, formula and that I could sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I honestly don't believe, I think I've seen brilliant, incredible things. Like there's this incredible writer right now named Brian Washington, who I heard an interview with him and he had written huge parts of his now just on the market novel using notes on his iPhone in small little episodic huh. pieces. And it's absolutely brilliant. I aspire to write something some, um, nearly that, that great someday in my life. And then I've heard other people who absolutely transcribe and then other people who can't do it unless they're they're using longhand, et cetera. So I just feel like whatever gets the creative thing into motion is the thing to follow, no matter what. Like, what's the sparkle? What's the lure? And then go toward it with whatever it is that you've got in your hand. Follow the falling glitter. <laughs> exactly. Seriously. Words to live by. Words to live by. So... When you are writing and you have a path that you want to take and let's, you know, say it's a a novel or something like that, do you write in a linear fashion? Do you just put it all together and then break it into pieces? Do you do timelines? Like, how do you organize all of your thoughts and the process around that? Okay, so one of the other things about the lab that I, you know, share with other people because it works for me is that each project has its own container, but you don't really quite know what that container is, what container you might need until you've gathered a certain number of ingredients. So I think of like my notebooks that I can travel with and take anywhere. And sometimes this has become my phone. It just depends. It's like I've been in situations with you, Rick, where we've been in a social setting together where something good happens that makes me want to include some sort of you know, awkward or tense or hilarious moment, and I don't want to forget it. And so I'll sneak into the bathroom. And if it's, I got to record it into my phone by whispering, or if I have to like quickly type it in and send an email to myself, I'll do it. But, um, you, you know, on a, on a kind of a work day when I'm setting out to write, I do try to be pretty methodical and I too, do try to um, fill up 10 pages of a handwritten a day. I don't judge it. I don't read it back. I just move forward and I try to get 10 of those notebook pages filled with whatever comes in my head. And usually with me, it's around a strong emotion. I can fill notebooks with what I'm angry about. Then later... <laughs> Then later, I, I do realize as an artist that only anger, one note, isn't interesting. The thing that makes the song beautiful is that it's, it's a variety of tonalities. It's a variety of tempos, the ways that it speeds up and slows down. There's moments of pause. There's moments of intensity. And same thing with any great story. And so later I realize anger at the beginning, anger at the middle, anger at the end doesn't work. But I take the best parts out of all of the angry stuff. And then I start to think, okay, what's the counterpoint? And so I start thinking, does the character ever get sad? Or are they, what are they joyful about? Or where are the moments of connection in this person's life when they're not angry? And then, and then sometimes that helps me sort of fill in the blanks. But each project is a little bit different. The one that I'm currently, um, you know, the one that I'm, we've got coming out, it did happen over years and years and years, this particular story. And it seemed like it was two different stories and then they merged. So wow. each, each one happens a little differently. So do you have pieces that you may keep in a notebook of 
of observations or things where you're writing something and you're like, you know what, I think that this is, this has a place in what I'm writing right now. And you, and you go back to it and bring it in something that maybe you didn't know was a part of the story to begin with. Absolutely. Absolutely. When it comes to like this novel, Doubting Thomas, I was imagining a story about three brothers, one gay. I'm, I'm um, fascinated by the sibling relationships when one of the siblings is gay. And so I was, I was writing about that at a particular time of my life. And I had invented that the brother character in my novel was, I didn't know it was a novel, but in the material that I was working on at the time, I invented that he got sick with cancer and somebody was going to have to adopt. The kid was up for grabs. Uh, his kid was going to have to be adopted. And that there was this tension because one of the brothers was gay and the other wasn't. And where should that kid go? And um, then my own real life brother, Paul, got diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer and he ended up surviving, which was really good. But during that period of time where it was a big question mark, I couldn't work on that material anymore. And so I thought I had ban- abandoned it forever. And then years later, I started working on this stuff that was based on this this horrible accusation that I had heard. And uh, um, yes, to answer your question, then I very literally went into the notebooks about the brother material that I thought that I had abandoned forever because I somehow came across... The one day happened where I was just like, wait a minute, this is the inciting incident, this accusation that this gay teacher, you know, he, he was falsely accused of doing something that he didn't do. That's the inciting incident that thrusts him back into the world of his family in a particular way that he would not have. And then that's, mm. that's when I was able to use some of that other material that I had written years ago. So interesting. So interesting. <laughs> yeah, really. It really is. It is. It's very fascinating because if you think about it in the terms that Matthew puts it in, is that you f- it feels manageable to be able yes. to just start doing something. I don't yeah. write. That's not my, um, I, I'm not going to say I, I can't. I, it's not my milieu. It's not the most comfortable way for me to express myself. But with the information that Matthew has presented on how you just kind of practically start writing things down, and even if they don't make any sense, and I have a lot of baggage, I think, around criticism, uh, not from necessarily people criticizing the way that I write, but just that level of exposure, you know? Yeah. When you a think lot about- A people like, scared, are scared of stuff like that, exposing themselves, and your writing is an extension of you, or it could feel yes. very vulnerable because it is an extension yeah. of you, and people are reading it. But what I love, Matthew, is you do, you make it, um, it it's like the bite size. It's, it makes it feel like it's, it is manageable, but it's not just manageable, but startable. You know, it feels like it's something that I, I could do. It doesn't seem so, I've blown it out of something big. It's manageable. Yes. And I think that part of my appeal that helps people feel a little bit more comfortable is that I was a high school dropout and I was, a. Uh, 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 10 years into my teaching creative writing, I was still waiting on tables. My, my students would come into the restaurant where I was a server and uh, um, I would be bringing them Chapino and a glass of Pinot Grigio. <laughs> You know what I mean? And hoping that they'd leave me 20% tip. And so I was approaching it from a standpoint of like, these are challenges that I myself face because I had been told certain things. And, you know, circling back to something that you said, Rick, is that I think that you you have wonderful stories. I think that what you're a pro at is the unbelievable anecdote. I mean, I swear to God, over the years, Melissa, that Rick and I have known one another, I have been hurt. Like, my insides have been hurt by... Laughing like five times in my life, and four of yeah. them, it's right after Rick Rishon stopped talking. 
And Absolutely. like sometimes just the, the particular way in which you portray something, Rick, is so unique. It so illuminates a worldview so unique to you that we're not interested in whether or not like readers of, of fiction and, and great memoirs, they don't they're not interested in what's right or wrong or good or bad. They're interested in what's unique to you. Bring me out of my world, my head. And bring me into your experience so I can look at my my life differently than I had before reading this. And all of this pressure, like people put all of this pressure and um, they attribute all of these things that shouldn't be attributed, in my opinion, to creative writing around um, status. Hmm. You're not necessarily any smarter than anybody else. You might be more patient and you might have learned some techniques, but it's the same. It's not so precious as people think. And I think that what I try to do is break down the preciousness of it in my job at the university. I love working at a state university where a lot of people like me were first generation to be able to get to go to college. Mm -hmm. My parents didn't get to go to college. And uh, uh, my mom eventually got a master's degree after she was in her 40s. And um, but they both grew up poor. And so I wasn't raised in this academic, uh, I didn't, I wasn't raised to think of myself as a person who could achieve the things that I, I guess I have, which is part of the reason why I guess I was, I never thought of myself as um, a failure. I mean, I think other people did because I had been going for something for so long and I'm not getting it. But I always thought that I was achieving something because I had my rent paid on time or early and I was doing something I loved. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that's part, like, that's 90% of the job is like getting people to let go of their baggage around writing and just start a scene. Yeah. If that makes right. sense. Well, and I, and I think for those people that don't know Matthew, I mean, I started this podcast by talking about your tenacity and it is tremendous. And you have had so many ups and downs and pull yourself up moments just in general i mean just life stuff and you know taking care of yourself and getting your ged and getting your uh, you had a ba first and then your mfa and then becoming a, a college lecturer and then i mean and then 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 you had you were selling another novel and then that novel isn't the novel that's actually being published because you wrote another novel and then that novel is going to be published but then that first one's probably going to get published after this first like it's a whole series fingers of crossed i mean but but really 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 i am so proud of you and so energized by your story, which any normal person would have given up. Hmm. And you didn't. Well, any sane person might have, but I think that I realized, <laughs> like, you know, Rick, I, I love you and appreciate you so much because, you know, it's your emotional reactions to my achievements. But I mean, uh, Melissa, you should have been there when, when my husband and Asu and I had our taco party after got, we, had, we had gotten married the day before at City Hall and we had a taco party the next day. And Rick mm -hmm. kept saying, I can't believe you got married. I can't believe you got married. And I was just like, what's that? Because he was there and witnessed <laughs> all of the things that went into why I was so guarded in relationships, mm -hmm. especially romantic. I felt like I had hit the jackpot in so many areas of my life. That to be, you know, I'm bald, but I have really cute eyes. And I just feel like it wouldn't be fair to the other guys if I had both hair and my eyes. So I just felt like, you know, let's focus on the eyes part, you know. And I, and I think that, that that is a gift that I, I sort of inherited, I think, that for my mom in a sense, where it's just like, you know, I can see and my dad, too. It's just like both of them were people that didn't spend a lot of time feeling sorry for what they didn't have. Instead, mm. they were able to kind of take whatever two ingredients that they had and mix them together and come up with something really 
really nice and good. So I think that I felt like I had hit the jackpot in that I did something that paid me more than I needed to spend that I loved while everybody else was commuting five days a week. I was, you know, not, I was doing something different and I had the summers off and whatever else. And then also I felt like I had hit the jackpot when it comes to friends. And I don't feel like I'm saying that just to flutter Rick, but I felt like I had deep relationships over decades of time with people that had witnessed so many things and I had witnessed so many things in their lives. And I felt like that was I think that my secret was that I felt like that was enough. So it didn't feel to me, there were some dark nights of the soul when I was seeing other people get published with stuff that seemed like, oh, well, if that's getting published, the reasons that they're giving me for mine not getting published, it's not mainstream enough, it's too queer, it's too gay, it's too angry, it's too AIDS. Like all of the things that I write about, some editors would say, no, 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 no. But then I would see something and I would just be like, why not me? And it would bring up like uncomfortable feelings. But most of the time, I was just happy with what I had. And I, mm-hmm. and I write not because I want material success in the world, because that would be a dumb plan. If you want material success in the world, get into sales, if you're a gay Gemini. Yeah. Don't try to write books, <laughs> literary fiction. That's an idiot plan if what you yes. want is money. Mm-hmm. So I think that, Very cool. that, Rick, you should really think about um, ways in which you can take those anecdotes and turn them into stories. People that are great at anecdotes sometimes get frustrated with writing too soon because it takes a long time to unpack an anecdote to see what the truth in it might be um, interesting for a larger piece. Um, especially when you're used to that satisfaction of like the uproarious laughter that you can cause at a party. And that takes some patience and some diligence, but otherwise it's something that's so achievable. Very cool. So can you tell us about your forthcoming novel and a little bit about that story? Yeah, um, I, have, I, you know, I feel like I, just like I, I was, even though I was single for a really long time, I dated a lot. I, I had what I think a lot of people would consider to be a successful career prior to getting a book deal, because I was lucky enough to publish things in places like The Atlantic and Guernica and all those these other wonderful magazines and literary magazines. Plus, I won awards and I kept getting like great agents to represent me and to to send stuff out. But um, I also just I just so happened to like sign with people at particular times in their careers or particular times in their lives where for whatever reason, my particular project um, would sometimes either it just the timing was never good with what I was producing and or what was happening with the agent who's the gatekeeper mm-hmm. and or what was happening in, in literary trends in the in the in the in the world. And um, sometimes take, getting a new agent can take two years. So there was just wow. all of these big gaps of time that went by. And I just, the thing that I did was I kept writing. Finally, by the time, <laughs> by the time I had a student at the lab whose friend is the writer, Michael Nava, he writes all sorts of fiction, including a very famous series about a gay Latino lawyer and an investigator they're literary in the sense that they explore all of the aspects of the human condition, but they're also crime novels. And so he was starting a new press called Amble Press, which was to expand the vision of an um, existing lesbian press called Bywater to include the whole LGBTQ spectrum. 
And um, he approached me because he had heard through a mutual friend that we had, uh, that I had this novel in progress. And by that time, if there was a guy with one tooth outside of Kinko's and that tooth was brown <laughs> and he said he would take my manuscript and make two copies of it and sell it on the corner for me, I would have said yes. <laughs> and so I did send the manuscript very gladly to Michael and it's wonderful to be solicited for something rather than to, to go to somebody else and solicit them. And uh, um, it turned out to be an incredible, incredible decision. I've never received so much generosity from an editor in my entire career, even though I have received lots of generosity. And uh, now we have Doubting Thomas coming out in June by Ample Press. Well, it's all very exciting, and I'm so proud of you. So can you tell people where they can find you and the lab and Doubting Thomas online so that they can pre-order the book and they can find out more information about your lab? Absolutely. The um, lab right now in COVID times is also, there's a completely asynchronous step-by-step six-week version of the lab that's available for people that's, you know, without us gathering in a circle like we normally do on Tuesday nights once um, we're all vaccinated and ready to go again. Um, that will be coming back. But in the meantime, you could start today if you have a story to tell. And also, um, all of the nice things that people have been saying about my book and in anticipation of its release and where to order it are all on my website. My name, Matthew, has two T's and my last name, Davison, has one D, the first letter. And my middle name is Clark like Kent. So it's MatthewClarkDavison.com. Everything is there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And uh, we will look forward to the release of your book. And take care, my dear friend. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Ricky Roshan. Thanks, Melissa. (laughs) Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for joining us this week on Your Life, the Sequel. Make sure to visit our website, revital.ist where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you'll never miss a show. Or sign up for our newsletter, The Revitalist, filled with daily tips for making change in your life. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd really appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Special thanks to our audio engineer and editor, Mark Cate. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode of Inspirational Change. Be the change you want to be.